Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, attacks on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. We'll get the latest on what's going on down there. Also, a date has finally been set for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to meet with the Minister of Transport to talk LRT. And the Ontario government has announced some new changes to the education system, including the sex ed program. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First and foremost, let's uh, see what we can find out about the latest in New Zealand. This tragic story, of course, that, uh, well, we just found out about earlier this morning. At least 49 dead, 20 seriously wounded after attacks on two mosques in, tr- in Christchurch in New Zealand. And uh, to suggest that the, the authorities are still looking into this, I guess, would be a massive understatement, just looking at some of the footage that we've seen over the last little while. And, of course, uh, the reaction to this uh, was swift, as uh, you might have expected, too. This is uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. You may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. Director, the latest, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program David Vidset, anti-terrorism specialist who worked on the investigation into the 7-7 London bombings, and of course was Scotland Yard detective in the anti-terrorist branch. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Hello, Bill. How are you? Uh, shocked, I guess, is maybe the best word for it, isn't it, David? It is. It's absolutely horrendous. I think it's, uh, I haven't, I can't say categorically, but I think it's one of the worst uh, mass shootings in New Zealand's history. Uh, absolutely horrendous, and the fact that uh, he's uh, shared footage on Facebook, and uh, people are sharing that all over the world, it just makes it all the, all the worse, really. It's horrendous. What do we know so far, David? Uh, well, I think he's, um, he, he's, it was certainly well planned. Um, where he's got the firearms from, uh, we don't actually know. I think he was uh, previously a resident of Australia, um, and uh, he comes from a small town, in Australia, uh, what he did in New Zealand, I, I, I don't know, uh, and where he got the firearms from. But he's he's um, he turned up at one mosque uh, during Friday prayers uh, this morning, parked his vehicle um, in an alleyway by the side of it, and uh, he simply entered the mosque and um, massacred people inside the mosque. Um, he's returned to his car on several occasions uh, and picked up different firearms, uh, reloaded and uh, just simply gone backwards and forwards uh, and, and shot people inside. And even when um, you know those people were prone on the floor, he has slaughtered them on the floor. Uh, he's then moved on to another mosque uh, a few miles away in Christchurch and, and done the same there. I think he, he killed 40 or 41 people in there in one mosque and, and, and then you know, seven or eight in another, and perhaps one died in hospital, so I don't know. Uh, but the individual that it is, I mean, he published... Um, some awful stuff online uh, shortly before he carried out the attack, uh, allegedly, uh, on why he's done it and what his reasons for doing it were. And, 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 and perhaps, you know, he's no different from from many other terrorists in that respect. You know, he wants the world to see what he's done and, and he wants the world to know why he's doing it, you know, regardless of the, the merits or the, um, or the, the disgust that that might um uh, give to some people that that's what he wants to know but uh, I, I, me myself um I, I find it difficult that uh, the, the, the social media sites aren't taking this this uh, these these things down because I, i've been bitterly complaining about uh, the islamists doing it uh, and and you know stuff being shared online and giving support for these sort of attacks by the islamists and here we've got you know somebody on the far right you know, a fascist doing exactly the same thing 
uh, and, and it's, it's just spreading all over the world quite quickly. And as you said, you can't keep on top of it. So, you know, some of the messages I've been pushing out this morning is please don't share it. Yeah, I've seen that as well, and and I don't I don't know what gets into people's heads sometimes. I think you and I talked just after the Nice uh, uh, truck incident a couple of years ago too, and and uh, I saw that footage and I thought, what in heaven's name are people thinking? They took it down not too long after that, but I I had no idea what I was going to see. They just said, oh, this is it was on YouTube, I think it was, and and again yeah. to see some of the stuff on social media, and I, people get some salacious joy out of putting this stuff up here. Well, I, I, I don't know if it's salacious joy. I mean, I, I, the, the free speech activists and, and everybody who says, well, we should be allowed to see it. Um, but, you know, it, it is the propaganda. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm dead against um, even sharing photographs of, of Islamist attackers. And, I, you know, and I, and I haven't shared uh, photographs and names of them generally. I don't mind talking about their backgrounds. And, and perhaps we, you know, we can talk about this individual's background. But publicity is what they want, and uh, you know they want to be famous or infamous, uh, and, and so by by sharing this this media that they they, they want propagated around the world, you know their manifestos as they call it, uh, and the live streams or, or you know, recordings of what they've done is actually we're doing their job for them, and I think we really need to have a careful word with ourselves and stop it uh, because you know, there's getting absolutely no respect for. Um, you know, the families involved. Uh, and and, and you've done the same conversation you and I did have, I remember, um, about the niece attack and people sharing uh, pictures of loved ones, people's loved ones on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's exactly the same in this mosque. And, 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 you know, it's, it's horrendous, really horrendous. They, I, I've, we've seen some of the pictures, obviously, in some of the video that have uh, been posted over the last little while. One that I wanted you to comment on, uh, and it's uh, I, I allegedly, I guess, it's one of the weapons, if not the weapon, I guess, that uh, this individual used uh, in the attack. And it actually has the names of other terrorists written right on the on the butt of the gun and, and, mm. and other parts of this, too. That's uh, that's rather bizarre. It is very unusual. I've personally not seen it before. Uh, I, I think perhaps, you know, he, he, I know in, in his manifesto he's talked about... Um, you know, uh, Second Amendment gun rights in the United States and, and why that should affect him, I don't know. I mean, I've looked at some of the gun laws in New Zealand and, they're, they're, to be honest, they're not dissimilar. You can go and buy with a license some of the weapons that he possessed. Um, so, so they are in sort of general circulation. I think the police will be looking at perhaps where he's got those from and how he's obtained that, bearing in mind, too, from, New, uh, from Australia. Um, but going forward, you know, he, he's obviously got a thing about gun rights and gun laws, um, and uh, perhaps when we look at um, when uh, the American forces, uh, you know, they write messages on their on their bombs, don't they, when they're dropping them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps, you know, um, perhaps this might be the same sort of methodology that he's using, putting putting stuff on his, his own weapons when he's using them. I don't know. Without getting into his head and understanding him a, a bit more, it's difficult to understand. But yeah, I've got not seen it personally before. The only, the only you know, it's similar to is, is what the American forces do with some of the big, large sort of bombs they drop. David, walk us through what, what's going on. I, aside from the the initial shock, obviously on site, and obviously that site, or those sites, I guess, have been secured at this stage. But but how are police moving forward with their investigation at this point? Uh, well, the police have obviously got a, it's going to be a horrendous um, time for for the local police. You know, there's, there's an awful lot of things for them to do. I mean, first and foremost, they they've got to um, try and. Um, set up uh, some sort of family liaison uh, and try and calm sort of the, the, the lo- local nerves about uh, what's going on uh, and trying to um, inform families about what's happening um, and, and look after 
um, perhaps the security because we don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of talk is you know in New Zealand people shouldn't attend mosques. You know, the, the doors should be shut for the day. It, this, this is part of a wider attack, and I suppose that's quite sensible. So some of what they're doing it will be security based and, and trying to um, calm community nerves. But or, or, around that, they've also got to investigate our mass murder. Um, and sadly, you know, a lot of um, the evidence that they will be looking at will be um, you know, trying to get the bodies to morgues um, and try and understand um, who who they got. Because um, when there's a, a mass murder like this, sometimes we we, we just don't know who, who all the victims are, um, and that follows on. You know what we've just been talking about about not sharing these sort of photos on on social media and, and not sharing these things because the last last thing we want to do is is, is for a loved one to to find out that actually um, one of their relatives, friends, or, or, or siblings or something has been has been slaughtered in this mosque. Um, uh, and, and it should be the police that tells them. So so identification is really really important, and, and so that that's one of the key things that's going on. Um, in terms of the investigation around him, um, the police will be uh, trying to locate where he lives. Hopefully they know that by now um, and, and trying to get inside his address and look at his communication data, understand who he has been in contact with and, um, and perhaps whether this is, this is something he's, he's chosen to do on his own. I mean, again, I know you and I have talked about you know, there, there being no such thing as a lone wolf and I don't believe um, that this, this person is either. Um, you know, there there will probably be some form of um, a support network around him. Um, that, that you know, depending on how um, wide or supportive that network is, but there will there will be people that, that perhaps he's, he's told about what was going to happen in advance, and obviously the police will want to attract those people down uh, and talk to them, and perhaps arrest and search those, those places as well, and, and, and to just try and clamp down on any further opportunity if there are people around them, any further opportunity for those people to dispose of evidence um, or, or to you know carry out their own attacks. That's an interesting point about who he may have been hanging around with and he may have been in contact with. Uh, the reports I saw this morning, David, indicated that actually three other people have been apprehended as well as the alleged shooter in this incident, and uh, at least one of them was armed. Uh, does that yes. lead you to think that there were accomplices in this, and this, as well, bad as this was, could have been a lot worse? Obviously, they had a, gr- a master plan. Yeah, I, I think uh, whenever you, whenever there's a terror attack, and, and you know, speaking from experience, whenever there's a terror attack, it, 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 these those things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, there, there's a build up to it. Um, there, there are invariably people that discuss it, um, and all of these, um, uh, the attackers, they try to uh, perhaps distance themselves from individuals that they're close to over, over a period, weeks, months, days, or whatever it is, uh, and try and make it look as if they have acted alone. Um, but occasionally we do see um, uh, closer, closer support, and, um, and w- without knowing who these individuals are that have been arrested or what the circumstances are, I can't say for certain. But sometimes we do see, you know, backup teams uh, and, and people that are going to ca- carry out a uh, copycat attack. Um, and you know, it might well be that the uh, the police have have laid hands on people that were going to carry out an attack somewhere else. You know, and, and that that's to their credit, really. Um, but it's very difficult for me to sort of correctly say this is what it was without knowing who they were. But yes, it, they, there could be there could be innocent bystanders that, that simply had weapons on them. You can, I think, carry weapons in Australia. 
um, uh, sorry, in New Zealand, um, with a license, and I'm not knowing whether those uh, weapons were in the boot of the car, in the vehicle, or on their person. It's, again, it's difficult to say. David, the initial reports that we have from uh, Mike Bush, who was the New Zealand Police Commissioner, uh, indicates that uh, none of the people that were arrested were known to police. Now, you've told us in the past, obviously, the the Five Eyes, the the international security group that are are looking at this. They they go through social media on a consistent basis and look for things like this. He's surprised that this guy didn't catch anybody's attention. Well, you, you would think so. I mean, I think you know, here in the UK um, and certainly in, in in large parts of Europe, um, we are seeing a, a kind of a resurgence by the far right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been saying for some years that we, we are going to see violence from them. And, that, and that's uh, sadly only going to get worse. So they're not going to get better. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily think, uh, I don't know how bad or the far right problem is in Australia or New Zealand. Um, uh, but you would like to think that the security service are on top of that. Um, uh, and, and I know here that we, you know, we, we've got figures which says, uh, you know, some, something in the region of, you know, 20 to 30 percent of everything that's coming through or on intelligence is, is far right extremism at the moment. Um, and, and you've only got to look on the internet, on YouTube, and on Twitter. You've only got, you know, there are plenty of people that are talking about this sort of thing. And, and uh, sadly, immigration, um, Islam, uh, all of those sorts of things are, are the target of the far right. Uh, I, I can't say for why, why they haven't seen them. Uh, you know, I know when when people carry out attacks, they do. Like I say, they they have this period of time where they're in a, a kind of an operational mode. Um, so um, what what they you know, perhaps if they've appeared on on a radar of, of one security service some time ago, in the lead up to an attack, they kind of go a bit dark and a bit quiet um and, and and quite often that has the effect of if the security service are looking at them they think oh well okay that of that person's not a risk when in actual fact that period of quietness and darkness is actually you know when they're they're collecting all of the supplies that they need to carry out the attack um and, and but quite simply when there's so many of them it's very difficult to, to have an eye on all of them and, and we rely on on members of the security service and the police to to kind of make these threat assessments and and risk assessments, but often they, you know as we've seen in this country they they do get it wrong, um, uh, and, and we need we, we need more eyes from the community and, and people out there to say I think, I think we should be looking at this guy. Yeah, there's a phrase that they use uh, here in Hamilton, uh, the police force, if you see something, say something. And, and, and I guess that's really the message here is that if it's anything suspicious going on, I mean, there's only so many things, I guess, and only so many places that security experts can be at one time or look at at one time. Uh, but we, as the public, may actually notice something like that. And I guess this is a, a stark reminder that we need to talk about that stuff. Well, of course. And, and that's, that's the thing is, is all of us are, are our own, um, you know, our own best friends in that regard you know we, we we are the eyes and ears of everybody and but it, and that that saying you just said you know if you see something say something is is, is absolutely perfect um you know we, we we the police and the security service we absolutely rely on members of the public just seeing something odd and, and no police officer and, and no you know no uh camp terrorist officer will, will will ever be upset about you saying i've just seen something a bit weird i don't i don't know if it means anything but i've just this guy's buying a lot of you know gas canisters or whatever or he's buying a lot of ammunition he appears to be keeping his ammunition i don't know why he's doing it you know he's certainly not traveling around and and, and doing you know and 
having lots of barbecues or he's not going around and doing lots of hunting. Um, and, I, and I just think maybe you should have a look at him. I mean, those, those sorts of things are really, really important. And you know, getting upstream of an attack is, is what we need to do. David Weitzet. Uh, David, uh, on a very tumultuous and, and, and shocking day, I'm so glad you had some time to give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for this. No, I've not talked to you. You bet. David Weitzet, of course, uh, from uh, ex-Scotland Yard. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a date has finally been set for that uh, long-awaited meeting between uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and, well, we was. We're hoping it was going to be the premier, but I guess it's uh, the minister of transport, uh, Jeff Yurick, who's going to be in town for a meeting, obviously to do with LRT. Bring us up to speed on what's going on. Of course, we welcome back to the program Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, thanks for the time. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm well today. Just uh, a little shocked by the news in uh, New Zealand. Uh, you know, I, I, I was listening to Love Train, and couldn't we use a little more of that today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just a, a troubling day, I think, for an awful lot of us as we watch some of the footage on that. Let's uh, let's talk about a couple of municipal things here. Just while I've got you here, mm-hmm. an update. I, I want to get into the LRT discussion with uh, Minister Yurik in a couple of seconds. But uh, yep. we find out that at the council meeting next week, uh, you're going to announce the new city manager. Yeah, actually, we're going to announce it to council, and uh, if uh, if that's confirmed to council, then we'll certainly make arrangements to uh, to finalize the agreement. So I think by March the twenty seventh, we will introduce that person to the community. So uh, you have you have selected, and that person is agreed to to take the job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All all we need is confirmation or, or ratification from council. And uh, given that on the 20th, then uh, we will finalize the details in terms of uh, contracts and agreements and then, uh, and then uh, make the, uh, the, uh, the individual known to the community at large on the 27th. And, I, you know, I, I really look forward to, uh, to this, uh, I think, inspired choice. I think it's going to be a great candidate and uh, certainly going to be a great city manager. And uh, I have uh, high hopes that uh, they're going to be uh, filling the, the, the shoes of Chris Murray exceptionally well. Well, we look forward to that discussion. I know you've been pretty coy about the, the name of the individual, so I'm not going to try to press you on that. Uh, well, I won't, I won't give it to you, but, you know, in fairness, uh, they still need to notify their, uh, their current employer. So until this is ratified, obviously, that, uh, that won't happen. So, uh, you know what, uh, we, we, we owe it to them to maintain confidentiality until the time is right that they can uh, make all of their, all of their uh, previous employee, employer uh, informed and uh, given proper notice. And uh, the start time for this individual would be uh, coming in uh, May, April, May, May, May the, May the 6th or 7th, I think is the start time for this person. So given that it'll be ratified, I trust that it will be. Uh, we'll be uh, well on our way early May. All right, uh, and that's great news. And uh, I'm, thank heaven there are never any leaks at City Hall of a confidential information, so I guess we'll just have to wait till then. <laughs> He, he said, "He said, tongue in cheek." All right, let's let's talk yeah. about the meeting with the transport minister. How did this come yeah. about? Well, this has been ongoing since uh, Christmas. The premier was in uh, Grimsby, said uh, you know some some nice things. In fact, said that uh, there was an election held in Hamilton, and you know the candidate uh, that won uh, was an LRT supporter, and therefore the, he gets LRT. He said at that time that uh, he was going to meet with me and uh, have that discussion, kind of uh, you know thrash out how we're going to proceed uh, together. And uh, unfortunately, through timing or scheduling or, or, you know, rethinking on their part, uh, it's come down to a meeting with the Minister of Transport. We've been ready, willing, and able to meet uh, the Premier or the Minister or anyone else that, uh, that uh, wants to talk about Hamilton issues uh, at any moment in time. Uh, I had a previous meeting with the Premier shortly after the provincial election, and we, we definitely had a discussion around LRT, and uh, that's 
what I hope we will continue to finalize when I meet with the Minister of Transport. What's what's going to be on the agenda? I mean, I, I guess first and foremost, I, I'm hoping that you're going to come away with this meeting with a, a much more clear understanding as to what the, the province's commitment is. Right, and, uh, you know, my understanding is that the province uh, remains committed to the billion-dollar infrastructure funding for uh, for LRT. Uh, you know, they, uh, the Premier did say that uh, the, the election, the democratic process happened, and uh, and uh, an LRT candidate uh, came out on top quite significantly, in fact. And so uh, we need to follow through. You know, some of the outlying questions are now, uh, you know, what happens to the land freeze that happened uh, right across the province? So land acquisition was frozen right straight across the province from one end to the other. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the Premier deemed uh, deemed to be uh, appropriate. Uh, we, we would like to have that... Uh, that land acquisition freeze lifted uh, for the LRT corridor in Hamilton. Just just the LRT. If they want to maintain it anywhere else, that's fine. But we need a clear signal from the province that uh, the, the work that needs to be done to get this project uh, moving uh, can uh, can happen. And so uh, the current bidders, there's about there's three of them that are uh, you know in line to bid on this uh, agreement. The RFPs were actually done uh, you know middle of last year. Uh, have been waiting to, to see a clear signal that uh, this is a live project that is worth their while putting you know, a $3 million bid together for. And so uh, I fully understand where they are, and they want a clear signal. We uh, hopefully will get that from the minister, and uh, then we can move on to finding out what the real cost of this project is, and then uh, you know, de- then determining uh, where we go. You know, whether it's under or over, we don't know. No one will know until the bids are done. And uh, hopefully we can then uh, make some decisions about uh, how we move forward collectively. You mentioned there are three people that are waiting in the wings, so to speak, uh, to, to mm-hmm. you know, bid on this. Are, are you concerned that with these delays that, that one or maybe more than one may just walk away from this? Or are they, are they no, tied to the project not. no matter what? Yeah, and we're not, we're not hearing that. They're, they're, uh, they're pre-approved uh, bidders, so they've already gone through a screening process. Uh, they're interested in getting this work, there's no question. Uh, but they're not interested in uh, spending $3 million only to have that, uh, you know, go down the drain on their, their part. Where, uh, when, and there's no compensation for their, for their bid process. So they're, uh, they're being, uh, you know, frugal and, uh, and I think wise in terms of, you know, waiting until, uh, you know, a fairly, fairly clear signal happens from the province that this is a live project. And then uh, they're, they're, I'm sure they're going to put their pencils to paper and give us uh, competitive bids. That uh, hopefully will, uh, you know, be in and around a billion dollars. And so, uh, and if it's not, you know, right in the memorandum of understanding we have with the province, it says that uh, the province would be allowed to approach the federal government for any additional funding that might be required. So all of those those eventualities have been covered. Uh, you know, there's no notion here that anyone's refused to answer the question. Uh, if there's a, if there's an overage, we have a conversation we have to have and. It might mean scaling back the project or looking for other sources of, uh, of funding. The federal government has just recently announced a, a billion dollars directly from the federal government to Edmonton for their next LRT line. They've contributed significantly to uh, the LRT lines in Ottawa and in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo. And uh, if it's necessary, and we won't know that until the bids are done, uh, they they are open to having a conversation about uh, participating in the LRT in Hamilton as well. Well, and and that may actually address the I guess the concern that a lot of people have raised about the cost overruns. And uh, obviously, when Ka- Donna Skelly was on the program here a few weeks ago, and she suggested that the city would be responsible for these cost overruns, I, I got to assume that's a question you're going to be asking, Mister Urich. 
Well, yes, but I mean that 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 question's been answered many many times. Uh, it's in the memorandum of understanding right from the get go. Uh, nothing has changed. There's always been a cap on the on the on the overall uh, contribution from the province. That's that's been in place right from day one. And uh, if the if the uh, if the bidding comes in over the cap, then we have to have a conversation. We have to talk about whether we can scale back the scope. Now, you know, scaling back the scope doesn't mean you change the entire route, but you could change some of the elements in the route to actually accommodate the additional cost that might not be necessary. And or we go to, uh, you know, other potential sources like the federal government. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, some want to hear the answer that the city of Hamilton is going to be responsible for that cost. That has never been the case. In fact, the previous government said quite clearly that the city of Hamilton was not on the hook. This is a totally provincial project. It's going to be owned by the province. It's uh, actually being managed by the province through Metrolinks as, in terms of the bidding process. Uh, the city of Hamilton is, uh, in, in many respects, an, an interested bystander that uh, wants to help and partner with the province of Ontario to move this project along. It is a provincial project full through and through, and for good reason. They, uh, they, they want it on their books so that they can actually depreciate the project on uh, on their uh, on their balance sheets, which is actually uh, helpful to them in terms of their overall accounting, in terms of how they uh, how they resource these dollars. Are, so uh, I, I I would say uh, you know let's continue on with getting to the RFP so that we can all know what the number is and what we need to do from there. Are you, are you confident this is still going to be a McMaster to to Eastgate project, or are you afraid that when you say scale down, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, my God, we're going back to the Queenston traffic circle again. Are you, it's nothing that drastic, I would hope. No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, the, the scaling down might mean changing some elements in the project or or potentially looking for private sector dollars to help fund some of the uh, the stations, which is uh, not uncommon in many projects uh, that are happening across the country, where private development uh, is interested in enhancing the uh, the stadium location or the, uh, the 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 transit stop locations to benefit their uh, their development projects. And so, there's all kinds of different options that can be done if, and this is still a big if, this comes in over a billion dollars. We won't know that until the RFP is done. And, uh, you know, as you know, previously, the uh, the original estimate was $850 million for the same route from McMaster to to uh, to Eastgate. Uh, they've added then, since then, $150 million to allow uh, for any contingencies. The, uh, the contractual arrangement that uh, is in place actually says it's $2014, so you need to translate that into $2019 at this point. So that's certainly a billion dollars. At twenty nineteen dollars is a higher number than the twenty fourteen number, and so all of that uh, I think accounts for any additional overages that might occur. So let's get to the RFP process. That's really the big issue. Uh, no one will know until we get the bids in. All right, and and if the, let's talk just on the philosophical level here. If you have to knock on the doors of of these other levels of government, or even talk to the province about uh, maybe rejigging or topping up some of this fund. Uh, yep. One of the steps in that, obviously, is dealing with the local representatives. And uh, you've got one federal and one provincial representative here who, uh, quite frankly, are staunchly opposed to this project. Does that concern you? Well, it's it's uh, it's been an ongoing process. So you know, I, I you know, we can agree to disagree on this project. Uh, clearly, the uh, the the last election was a pretty strong indicator of where the community sits. And, and you know, I'll remind them that uh, out of uh, some fifty some odd polls, I won forty four of them. And uh, it was based on, <coughs> excuse me, based on a, a strong 
push from an anti-LRT candidate that uh, was not successful. So that says to me that, by and large, the community is supportive of moving forward on this. They understand the value. <laughs> and I think the, uh, the elected members ought to stop trying to undermine this and get on board with trying to maximize the benefits that are coming to the city of Hamilton. Do you, do you think they are undermining it? Uh, do, you, do you get the sense they are trying to undermine it? <laughs> well, they're certainly not helping. And they uh, they were they tried to undermine my candidacy during the uh, the last election, and uh, you know at every turn they're uh, they're not speaking in favor of uh, moving this project forward, and they keep speaking in favor of trying to minimize the amount of uh, contributions that the city gets to actually make this happen. I think that's not their role. Their role is to to, to work on behalf of our city and try to make uh, get the best value from our other levels of government that they can. Are you concerned? I, I, I just talked about some of the other things. I'll let you clear your throat or ask the question here. Uh, mm. Usually when you're here live, I can offer you a lozenge, but I guess we can't do that over the phone. Yeah, this, this cold <laughs> is lingering. It's, it doesn't seem to want to go away. It's affected my voice at this point. Well, we'll try to get you just a couple more minutes, and then we'll let you go. No problem. The, the no concern problem. here, though, I, when we're looking at some of the other moves that the, the, the provincial government has made over the last little while uh, of, mm. of not honoring commitments, are you concerned at all that this thing may never actually get off the ground? Well, I mean, I'm, I can only go to uh, what the premier and uh, the local councillor or the uh, the MPP has said over and over again that this billion dollars is here for the city of Hamilton. So, uh, I'm I was delighted to get that investment coming to the city of Hamilton from the previous government. I think it was a significant milestone for the city to have them say, you know, city of Hamilton, you've gone through hard times, you've had many many challenges over the the, the past decades. You deserve a significant investment in the city of Hamilton, and and an LRT investment would not only provide enhanced transportation, but at the same time provide a redevelopment opportunity that will generate more revenue. I think the previous government saw that, and we certainly expect that this current government will see the same. And so (coughs) I anticipate that that this billion-dollar investment isn't going to go away, and I can only turn to what the premier and the uh, the local uh, MPP has said many, many, many times that uh, this is here for the city of Hamilton. So I expect them to follow through. Uh, I want to ask you, this is a bit of a technical question, but you've been in politics a lot longer. Maybe you can give us some perspective on this. Uh, funding sources. Uh, when, they, when they cancel the program, of course, for the Arts Center in Ancaster, and I'm still getting a lot of emails about that, people very upset about that. Uh, they yep. said that no funding source had been identified. Uh, maybe you could just set, uh, set the record clear on this. Is there a funding source identified for the LRT project? Uh, this is a finance project, so this is uh, so it's an apples and oranges situation then. Exactly, there's no comparison on this one. Uh, you know, actually, it wasn't true. I, the minister Tibolo that I met uh, just recently at the art gallery uh, two days ago confirmed that it had gone through treasury board. It had been identified in the budget. The money had been set aside, but they pulled the funding. They pulled the funding because there were no agreements in place with. The, uh, the, uh, the organization that's following through on this, including the city of Hamilton, uh, that there were no official agreements in place, and they were advised that uh, anywhere where there weren't any agreements, they needed to pull the funding. That's the way they're actually working towards uh, reducing some of their financial obligations. And so all the funding was in place. The previous government t- took all the right steps to make sure that it was properly done. Uh, I'm not sure where, where the, uh, the MPP got her information, but uh, the Minister of uh, Culture and Tourism told me quite directly, and it's his responsibility, 
that the uh, the funding was in place, but they uh, they pulled it because the agreements weren't there. On the on the LRT side, this is a finance project over the next thirty years. So it's design, build, finance, operate, and maintain. And so this is going to be paid out over thirty years, rather than there be a, a you know a, a pot of money sitting there, a billion dollars waiting for uh, for for it to be utilized in the city of Hamilton. And if uh, if we don't get the billion dollars for the LRT. It's going to be very difficult for them to find a billion dollars to follow through on their commitment for for other projects because they're going to now have to find real dollars right now. So that that's obviously something you want to get clarified from the minister. Uh, you mentioned the the real estate uh, purchase freeze that's gone on, and and we need to again clarify this is province wide. It's not just this project right. that they did that to. Uh, I, I don't know if they're ready to lift this this policy. I don't even know why they put it in place, frankly. But is there a possibility of an exemption for this particular project? Yeah, that's that's certainly what I'm going to be after. And uh, you know, they can. Uh, I mean, if they insist on having a freeze across the uh, the province, uh, you know, that's that's their prerogative. They can do that. I know when I met with the uh, the premier, he had concern over property acquisition towards Niagara. For the uh, the go lines, uh, that was what uh, the, that that was the comment he made to me, and therefore decided that a, a freeze across the province would be a, a first step for them to kind of put a hold on everything. We got caught up in that. Uh, I don't think there's any concern with the property acquisition that's happened in the city of Hamilton. It's been a willing buyer, willing uh, seller basis up until now, and uh, there needs to be follow through on that so that we can uh, get to next steps and 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 get to the finalization of the RFP. So it's a it's not it's a no brainer from the provincial perspective. We're not asking for them to freeze it anywhere else or unfreeze it anywhere else. But let's look at this uh, live project that is already out for RFP, and let's get this thing finalized. And this uh, this would be a clear signal that they're prepared to do that. Uh, very quickly, last question on this one. Uh, you yep. mentioned LRT, and I know earlier this week you were on Twitter uh, and, and very very upset about the the, the announcement from Metrolinx that uh, the all day mm-hmm. service is going to be pushed back once again. Uh, this is a, this is a promise, as you remember, Mr. Mayor, that mm-hmm. some the number of different provincial governments have made over the years. I mean, like going back to when you were in college, for heaven's sakes, we were anticipating all day go service here, and we haven't got it yet. Uh, I, can you can you articulate that concern when you meet with the minister at the end of the month? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've already, uh, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with uh, Phil Verster at uh, at Metrolinx, and uh, going to be sharing with him the same concern. Uh, you're right. This has been announced uh, multiple, multiple times with, uh, you know, going back to Dalton McGinty, uh, you know, four terms ago that made a promise that this was going to be uh, in place and delivered by 2015. And here we are in 2019 and being told that uh, 2031 is now the target date to, to have all day go service in Hamilton. It's just unacceptable. Uh, it's time that they made that commitment real. Uh, you know, we, it's been dangled around as a an election carrot for uh, far too long. It's now start time to start pushing, uh, you know, even harder to uh, to get the Metrolinx and the province of Ontario to uh, to finalize this commitment. And I, you know, I understand and appreciate their problem, and I think part of their challenge is CN and their uh, you know seemingly unwillingness to uh, to to free up the uh, the line capacity there. That's something that we can uh, hopefully ask our. MPs to help with, uh, you know, if Mr. Bertina wants to be helpful to, to bring all-day go service to Hamilton, then have a conversation with CN on our behalf and uh, encourage them to get busy freeing up some line capacity there so we can make that happen sooner rather than later. And I'd say the same to Philomena Tassian, and I, I made the same point to uh, uh, Minister Catherine um, uh, McKinnon, McKinnon, 
that was uh, in uh, just the uh, the other day speaking on uh, on climate change. So we had a good conversation about that, and uh, certainly about uh, LRT and whether or not the pro- the federal government would be open to having a conversation about additional funding. And certainly uh, got very positive response from her. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time today, and uh, get well. All right, Phil. Take care. I apologize for my growly voice. Thank it, you. Okay, it happens. Everybody seems to have that this time of year. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a few minutes ago, about an hour or so ago, the uh, Ontario Minister of Education uh, made an announcement, that being Lisa Thompson, of course. Uh, it was supposed to be about class size, uh, but they also uh, get the revelation that uh, they have uh, revamped, they say, I think was the word they used, uh, the sex ed curriculum. Joining us to talk about this is Annie Kidder, Executive Director of uh, People for Education. Annie, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again. It's great to be here. It's only been a few minutes, uh, less than an hour, I guess, since the Minister announced this. Have you had a chance to scan over this and what they've actually talked about here? Yep. I I listened to it, or I watched it live on the on my computer because of the modern world we live in. So, yes, I have had a chance to scan over it um, and to, you know, think about, you know, what's different, what's not different, and where we might be heading. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, let's start with where are we heading? Well, um, I think, I, I'm not sure it's an incredibly different path that we're on. I think that there was an acknowledgement that it was important, you know, that we're in the 21st century and that the the minister said we need to graduate skill uh, people with the skills they need to, you know, build good lives and families and have successful careers. And I think that I'm not sure anybody would disagree with that. Um, they did talk uh, a bit about, you know, back to basics. I, uh, we we are we feel pretty sure that it's important that we're not going back to anything, but that we're going forward in this time, these sort of complex times. Um, so the, she talked quite a bit about math and, and changes there. And I think even in ter- and the sex ed curriculum, but there it doesn't seem like really there's going to be that much of a change. Um, it was just important to them that they had done a big consultation, they had listened to people, um, and that they were going to move forward with um, maybe some adjustments to the uh, previous curriculum, but it seems to be going back into schools. Were they a little too drastic by just, you know, blowing that other one up and just, uh, because obviously they've got a, re- a lot of pushback on this right now. I know they, they, they instituted the telephone hotline. You, you know, you and I, everybody could phone in there and say how we felt about this. And the first numbers we saw on that were overwhelming, like bring back the old curriculum. Don't mess with this. And it seems as if uh, maybe they got the message because what I've seen from the announcement this morning, and they've, they've tweaked it, I guess is maybe the best way to say this. They're not really revamping it or blowing it up, are they? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I think wiser heads prevailed. I'm not even sure, you know, it's the difference between politics and actual and policy. (laughs) And that, you know, there's one thing when you're running and you're going to like really, you know, shine a light of things and be very kind of absolute, very black and white. And, you know, this is evil and terrible and we're going to get rid of it. But once you're actually governing and you're thinking about policy and how you implement it, um, then it get things, be, you know, hopefully become a little bit clearer. And I think that the, the health and phys ed curriculum is a perfect example of that. It was worked on for many, many years. Uh, we were actually behind in Ontario, behind other provinces. So, uh, yes, I think that basically they're putting it back again. Um, they're making it clearer that, you know, parents can opt out if they want. And they're also posting um, sort of modules online so that you can understand what it is. Because I think there was so much misinformation that after a while people became, you know, 
started talking about it as the controversial curriculum, which it wasn't really at all. Um, so now I think that they've seen that what's important is that we let everybody know what's in this curriculum and that it's actually not very earth-shattering. Well, and that, there was a fear factor involved. I mean, when they said, this is terrible, we don't want our kids exposed to that, you, I, I think I and I think a lot of other people I talked to on the program here were very concerned about what we were going to end up with. Uh, you know, we're going to go back to 19th century, uh, you know, Victorian uh, attitudes toward this sort of thing. <laughs> but I, I, so I'm, I'm relieved to see some of the stuff that they talked about today. Yeah, no, and I think that... I think that, you know, again, that that's what we all have to kind of remember about, you know, is that in fact, you know, I think saner heads have prevailed in a lot of different ways. I, I think there aren't actually huge, there, there, you know, there was no change to kindergarten in this announcement. There were, um, there wasn't any kind of huge drastic, the most drastic change is to how they're going to fund uh, teachers for high school. That is, there's a big cut there. But, but uh, you know, and that they're talking about math and a new strategy. Hopefully there, too, it's not going to be the kind of sound bite back to basics. Uh, we were curious, and we went, to, we went, we looked up, we went, where did the three R's come from anyway? And it actually <laughs> was first coined in 1790. That's when, you know, the three R's were invented as an idea. And it's obviously, you know, the world has changed a lot since then. So we definitely have to make sure, all of us, when we're thinking about this, um, you know, how are we going to make sure that we're moving forward and that we're embedding in all curriculum all of those skills that are, you know, employability skills and skills that help you collaborate. Or even, I mean, if you look at today, the skills and competencies that help you understand differences and help you, uh, you know, get along with people who don't have the same kinds of beliefs as you. These are really, really core key parts of education, and we have to make sure we're building those in our schools. Too. Well, and again, the perception when they say getting back to basics, I'm figuring, well, wait a second here. You and I have had discussions, Annie, over the years about uh, about how complex the, the world is and employability mm-hmm. is these days. And, you know, we've talked about coding and introducing that at a younger age, things of that nature, because that seems to be what the industry is calling for right now. Uh, that's not the basics. That's that's moving forward and having a vision for the future. Not at all, and it's not the basics. I mean, even coding. There are even people saying now, too late, you know, that's fine. We don't even need that anymore because that's a per- particular skill which now can be done by machines. So what what we definitely need is people who can keep on learning, people who know how to, like, critically look at a problem and figure out different possible ways of solving it, people who can persist, people who can collaborate, people who can empathize. Like, there are a lot of skills that are needed and that aren't going to change with all of the, you know, automation or the different kinds of jobs in a knowledge economy. Or, and and it's important, you know, one thing is the, you know, the job part of it, but also the, the skills that you need to live as a citizen in the world. So again, you know, how can I engage? How can I make my voice heard? How can we, you know, work on sort of building a kind of socially cohesive society. They, you know, how do I, how can I vote? Why should I vote? Why is it important? Things like that. So those aren't back to basics. Those are the new basics that, that we need moving forward. And, you know, and maybe it's just a, you know, it's a kind of political line going, you know, there has been a lot of talk and the minister did talk about back to basics this morning, but it's like, let's remember that really, really nobody should be going back to the basics that were developed in 1790, um, that we really... <laughs> 
need to be moving forward. Let's talk about class size. Uh, my understanding here is that uh, the it's high school that they're going to tinker with. The elementary schools, I guess, the, the grades one through eight, uh, they're pretty much going to leave uh, the, the the number of class uh, student to teacher ratios. Are you concerned about the uh, the changing of the ratios though? Well, it's going to be interesting to see what it means. It is that is a big big change. And so in high school, because it's based on, you know, we fund you at this average. So before, boards have been able to then go, okay, we're going to have some really small class sizes in these areas and bigger ones in these areas uh, because this is how much funding I get for teachers. I can spread them around in a way that I want. Um, when, you, when you increase the, the average, uh, you know, in terms of funding, um, you, re- you take away some of that flexibility. So it's going to be interesting. This is when we have to wait uh, for the details and the kind of there'll be a funding announcement in a couple of weeks to see um, are they then, because right now every single board for every 22 high school students, you get funding for one teacher. Um, so it's a big change if suddenly it's for every 28 students you get funding for one teacher. That is a significant cut in funding. Um, and it is, and it may have an impact on boards in terms of that flexibility or, uh, yeah, overall it may make class sizes increase. That's, that's, n- there's not direct absolute evidence that says, you know, smaller classes, particularly in high school, equal better grades or academic achievement. But certainly teachers talk about how important it is to them to be able to, you know, pay attention to individual students, be able to differentiate the learning, as they say, so that I'm like, I'm I'm teaching you in this way because I know this is what you need. and I'm going to teach, you know. Manuel over here in a different way because he needs something else. Um, and it's, that's easier to do uh, when your class isn't enormous. But the most obvious uh, impact, as you mentioned, I think is going to be on the boards of education themselves. I mean, they're taking a bit of a financial pounding from uh, the, the government over the last little while, the autism programs and, and now this. And, uh, well, even to go back even further, when they canceled the cap-and-trade program and all that infrastructure money for school yep. improvements is gone now, too. That's a, there's going to be a lot of pressure on boards of education right across the province. I th- yeah, I think there is. I mean, but they, you know, and they've definitely warned that that was coming. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how much of a, right now, the minister talked about a 1%, uh, you know, so it looks like about $250 million uh, cut. Um, you know, where that's going to come from, how that's going to work. And, and for boards, you know, that's why they were all writing going, please, can you give us a little bit more advance notice because we're already in our budget process right now. And that's why they, you know, they got the letter saying, uh, use prudence or whatever the letter said in terms of hiring because it's like don't hire anybody new because the news is coming so yes for school boards this this is going to make a difference and we have to you know from our perspective it's important to be careful that we're making decisions about education based on educational needs uh, not based on on money and and it's this is the next generation of society we're educating here, and we're we're really depending on them. Um, so we don't want to, um, you know, we want to make sure we're doing the best possible job we can. Yeah, and, and, and just to look a little further down the road, i got to imagine, this is only, as you say, just about an hour old now, uh, there's going to be pushback from the teachers' unions on this, this particular aspect of, of the new policy. Uh, and and I'm just hoping we don't fall back into the the Mike Harris days of you know teacher lockouts, teacher strikes, that sort of thing. I mean, it, it gets ugly when that sort of thing happens. Um, well, yeah, that will be there. The teachers will all be all um, education staff will be in a bargaining position 
fairly soon. Um, so yes, one does, you know, I think we all hope that we don't end up in um, the kind of awful sort of polarized state that that existed before. It's part of the, one of the reasons People for Education came into being. Um, yeah, so we don't want to go back to that. So hopefully now this is like the beginning of a conversation. They did say over four years, you know, you know that, I mean, there did, I thought, think that, you know, there was no sudden, huge, wild announcement this morning uh, that everybody should be up in arms about. There did seem to be an understanding that some of these things will take time. I think what's important to remember here is that, you know, policy, education policy, maybe all policy, is actually rocket science. It's hard. It's complicated. Every time you do one thing, it has a consequence somewhere else. Um, we, We can see that in the autism changes or changes for autism funding and autism pro- programs. So, you know, it, it care needs to be taken now on all of the next steps. Well, I was concerned, and we, we've had a number of programs about the autism funding and, and the impact that that's having right now. And, and the concern I had, especially with the announcement that uh, Minister Thompson was going to make today, is you, you've just nailed it, I think, is that, look, this is about people. Uh, it's about kids. It's about their future. Uh, you can't necessarily treat that. I understand that you have to have some fiscal responsibility, but you can't make this a mathematical exercise to say we can extract money from this board and from this uh, ministry, and that's how we're going to get rid of our deficit. Uh, I'm not suggesting education or health care are sacrosanct, but I mean, I think we the people would rather have a priority uh, given to those two things, and I'm not so sure that they have that. No, I, well, I think, well, I mean, I think, I think that it's, it, again, it goes, are you going to start in your thinking about this with the money, or are you going to start in the thinking about it again as, you know, that this is about people that we, we need? Um, and, and it is really important that these, but it, these changes aren't driven driven by you know a deficit reduction strategy. That yeah, yeah. And is, is, in other words, is this yeah. going to give us a better education system, or yeah. is this going to give well, us a cheaper education system? Yeah, no. And I think that that's what we have to keep watching for, and we have to make sure that we're you know all of us remind people all the time about. Uh, the incredible, even if we want to think of this just financially, uh, the incredible payoff in, uh, you know, the return on our investment by, with education that, yes, it's really expensive, but we as a society get that money back t- 10 times over uh, in reduced costs in health care, in more people paying higher taxes, in uh, less use of social services and uh, the criminal justice system, that, you know, we end up with a better educated society who can, you know, and if that's what we care about, com- compete in the global economy and and raise the standard for all Canadians. And, and it's, it costs a lot of money, but it gains us back a lot. Well, I hope that's the mantra that they're using in all this. Annie, always a pleasure. Thanks okay. so much for the time Thanks today. A lot. Take care. Okay. Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.